Okay, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. And as always, I want to apologize that I'm not Charlie. At the same time, express how thankful I'm not. No, wait, I didn't mean that. Yes, I did. That's all right. I love Charlie, and I have a lot of fun with Charlie. He's one of my closest friends. And I also miss him when he's not here. So we're in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him, you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning again wanting to express our thankfulness for allowing us to witness your work in such a miraculous way. There are so many in this room who literally do not have a memory of a time when abortion was not legal. And so, Lord, now you have done something on a national scene whereby you have, you've done something that, I'm sorry to say, including myself, so many of us really didn't believe you would ever do. And you've allowed us to see something miraculous. And we are thankful. We praise you. There is no one like you, and there is nothing beyond you. Thank you, Father. And Father, we pray that as we move forward from this point, that you would be seen and glorified in your son Jesus, that many would come to know that their security, their hope, their certainty is Christ. We have moved so far away from you, and that's something we say so easily and repeat over and over again, but Lord, like never before in our lifetime, at least those of us who are post-World War II, have never seen things happen like we've seen these last three years. And if anything, Lord, it has shown us that we truly are in desperate need for Jesus. And so, Lord, we look at Scripture. We see that we are the ones that make this complicated. That you, Lord, have made this simple. That it's all about Jesus. Not about us, for if it was about us, we would be hopeless. But we are people of hope. And we thank you. We ask for your wisdom as we look at your word this morning together to do so with your wisdom, for your glory. And we ask with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So... This morning, I was encouraged to preach this by sitting in Sunday school and being reminded of the same thing. And then Jeff speaking up and saying, so often it's really difficult for us who teach and to preach to fight the urge to come up with something else to say because everybody's heard us say what we're going to say. But then we're reminded that there's nothing else to say. When we start to try to find other things to say, we start to pollute, cloud, and confuse just what it is the Lord would have us hear. And so, even, and I really struggled with this. I struggled with a lot of this this week because I, I, I kept, the, the battle was going over and over in my heart. These people have heard me say this. I need to come up with something else. 
And, you know, the Lord just works in my heart that I haven't come up with anything else, so why do you think you have to come up with something else? And so I was encouraged this morning in Sunday school to hear the same thing. I listened. Charlie and, and some of the His Hill staff are in England right now at the conference, the International Conference of Torchbearers, and I listened to some of it and heard Peter Reed, who has preached here. He is the general director of Torchbearers. He actually preached the same thing. And he said this, that we have to remind each other. The last thing I heard Major Thomas preach as general director of Torchbearers was the same thing. He got up in front of us and he said this, how many times do I have to tell you the same thing? And then he went on and said, it didn't bother Paul, it's not going to bother me, so here we go. He was at his hill soon after that, and I thanked him for the reminder, and he jumped up. And if you remember, those of us who have, have met Major, and he's been here to preach as well, you know, he just couldn't move that fast anymore toward the end of his life. He couldn't move well. And when I said thank you for the reminder, he was sitting at the table in our fish house. He dropped his fork. He pushed his chair back and stood up really quick, looked me in the face, and I thought, what have I done? I'm about to get it. I'm about to be corrected. That has happened several times before. And he looked at me and said, Kelly, that's exactly what it was. It was a reminder, and we have to remind each other every day. There is nothing more for the Christian to talk about of any worth than Jesus. So often we get distracted by the peripheral, we get distracted by the things that should be a reality for us because of Christ, and we start to emphasize the peripheral and not the centrality of Christ. If we take Jesus out of the equation, then prayer means nothing. Our witnessing means nothing. Our Bible study and scripture memorization, our theology means nothing if we take Jesus out of the equation. We call ourselves Christians, don't we? You ever think about that? C-H-R-I-S-T. I-A-N. Not anybody in this room calls themselves a Kellyan. Not even Kelly. And we're all very thankful for that, aren't we? We call ourselves Christians, but so often Christ is the last person we want to talk about the last place we want to go. Is Christianity, is the Christian life just too simple for you? It should be. 2 Corinthians 11.3 reads like this, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the Simplicity and purity to Christ. That word simplicity is an interesting word. It, it, it brings with it a, an understanding of a, a singleness of purpose. It is without self-seeking. That simplicity has got nothing to do with self. But it is a singleness of purpose in Christ. And this is what Paul was afraid that we would be led astray from. Not our Bible reading or scripture memorization, not our theology or our worship or our prayer life. Paul wasn't afraid of that. What he was afraid of is that we be led astray from the simplicity and purity to Christ. There are two groups of people that I have found throughout the years that respond to what I'm saying right now. There's one group that get very upset with me, have expressed that anger very articulately, I might add, and with much vigor. They're upset with me because I am telling them that the simplicity of Christ has got nothing to do with your goodness. Because your goodness is not good enough. I've had people tell me, I can be good. I said, yeah, you can. But not good enough. As a matter of fact, you could be good. 
every second of every day for the rest of your life and still not be good enough because your goodness is not the measure of the goodness that you were created for. We were created in his image by his life. Turn with me to 2 Timothy and just look at these. We're just going to skim through this, but I want to point something out in this passage that Paul has to say to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And and we'll start in verse 1, but like I said, we're just going to skim through it. I'm going to point out some things. He says in 2 Timothy 3, 1, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, why will this be difficult? For men will be lovers of self. Verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Verse 7, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 9, but they will not make further progress. Our goodness, as good as our goodness may be, is not good enough. That's as far as we will go. And it is far short of the image of God. So there's those group of people who get behind, who, who, who react to what I have to say. They're upset when they're told that their goodness is not good enough, but there's also another group of people that have responded this way with great relief and release from their insufficient goodness in order to live the abundant life that Christ has saved us for. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it, how? Abundantly. I heard a pastor yesterday use this verse in the argument of abortion. I thought, wow, why have I never seen that? It is Christ's gift. I have come that they may have life. It is the enemy that wants to destroy. So these are the two groups that respond to the truth of Scripture, which clearly says that our life is not found, this simple life is not found in our knowledge, in our activity, in our goodness, but it's only found in Christ. Which group do you identify with? As you sit there and you listen to me, and those who are online listen to me, when I say your goodness is not good enough, do you rejoice or do you fume? The reason for the letter of Colossians, our text, I believe it to be from Paul having to address the, the, the problem of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a belief that was, uh, was, was pretty prominent, was a, something that early church had to deal with. Gnosticism is simply, just, just to put it in a nutshell, it's a teaching that eternal life is dependent upon a secret knowledge that we come to. And it denies the deity of Christ. It denies the truth that Jesus is God. So eternal life is dependent upon me being able to understand something, master something, and has nothing to do with the deity of Jesus. This is exactly what Paul was afraid of. I believe that it's still to be a problem in the church today. That this eternal life has got nothing 
has got, not, has got everything to do with me being able to comprehend, master something, and nothing to do with Jesus. Those who have been students of mine uh, know that there's a little stump that I've jumped on from time to time to time to time to time to time. When I was full-time at His Hill, I taught a class on ecclesiology, the study of the church. One of the textbooks that we used was written almost 30 years ago. We started using it, it was new. <laughs> I couldn't, I was, I was counting the years up yesterday, I thought, oh my goodness, it's been almost 30 years. This book was in the top five top sellers among Christendom for years, if my memory serves me right. And after a while, after using this book for like 15 years, Others thought, maybe I need to stop using this book as a textbook because it's kind of old. Well, it is old. It's 27 years old now. And the reason I want to bring it up is because we've had 27 years now of this kind of teaching. Let's see where it's brought us. It's a book that's written by Rick Warren. It's entitled The Purpose Driven Church. Maybe a number of you have that book. It has been very influential in our church in pushing something called seeker-friendly or seeker-sensitive. Now, a lot of people in this room have no idea what that is because it's become so normal. It's become so common in all of our churches that we don't even realize it to be what it is. If you're younger than me, you would be shocked. You know, I've often told people that if we were to get into a time machine and we were to go back and let those younger people in this room see what church was like 30 years ago, they wouldn't recognize it. And I am not a, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a proponent of doing things a certain way. My problem is, my question is, why are we doing things the way we do the things we do? What's behind the way we do the things? I don't care how we do it necessarily, but why are we doing it that way? That's the problem. And so there was a movement 27 years ago that saw, you know what, we're not reaching the world for Christ. We need to do something different. We need to change what we're doing because obviously what we're doing is not right. And so this seeker-friendly, seeker-sensitive thing started to take over. What was it all about? What was the teaching of it? From the book, Purpose Driven Church, Rick Warren explains why he thinks we need to go this way. And so he starts by talking about the health of the church, that we're not healthy, what is required to be healthy. And so this is an excerpt from the book. It reads like this. Healthy, lasting church growth is multidimensional. My definition of genuine church growth has five facets. Every church needs to grow warmer through fellowship, deeper through discipleship, stronger through worship, broader through ministry, and larger through evangelism. So five things here. Every church needs to grow warmer, deeper, stronger, broader, larger. Okay. No big issue there. That that's, you know, okay, that's, that's his definition of what a healthy church looks like. And then he goes to Acts chapter 2 to show how he came up with this. Good, go into scripture now. In chapter 2 of Acts, verses 42 to 47, he goes on to say these five facets of growth are, are described in the first church of Jerusalem. The first Christian fellowship edified each other, worshipped, ministered, and evangelized, 
As a result, verse 47 says this, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So he says, I see the five facets in the early church of being warmer, deeper, stronger, broader, and larger. I see these five things going on in the church. And then he says, and as a result, the Lord added to the number daily. He goes on and he says this, a couple of things about this verse. First, now listen, God added the growth, his part, when the church did its part, fulfill the five purposes. Now, when we read this book with the students, I wouldn't allow them to discuss it at all with anybody. First, there was a, there was a date when they would have it read by. Then we would all sit down together discuss it. I just wanted them to go before the Lord and just let the Holy Spirit work on their heart as they read through the book. And year after year after year, this will encourage some of you older people. These young people were just fuming as they read through the book. They would see things that were really good, like the five facets, and then they'd go on and find out that the five facets depend upon me. And when I finally got to let them talk about it, it was like the floodgates had been opened. And they taught the class. Are you seeing how this, does, this, this contradicts? That God does his part when we fulfill our part. So God's doing is solely dependent upon you. And what's really interesting is one of the five facets says that the church has to grow larger by its doing. So when you fulfill this, when you grow larger, that's one of the five facets, when you grow larger through evangelism. But then he goes on and says, so God adds. Now, wait a minute. You just said I have to do it. There's a contradiction here. And another thing that I want to point out, he's talking about Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, what the church did. But he doesn't talk about Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 41, which talks about all that Christ did in them by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they became warmer, deeper, stronger, broader, larger. The work that we see in Acts is the work of Jesus Christ. The work of what we see in Acts is not the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of Jesus Christ in and through the Apostles. The simplicity and purity to Christ. Now, why would I bring up a book that's written in 1995? Why would I make such a big deal about this? Because if you open that book up and you look at the introduction of it, you will find 39 high-profile church leaders that give their full, hearty endorsement to this teaching. And I will not read the names to you, but I will say this you will be shocked at which men actually said, this is good. When it is contrary to the simple purity to Christ. Now, what was the deciding factor for these decisions? To make the the decisions that this book has to to give, what was the deciding factor? It was this. The book taught this, and then you can, uh, churches from all over the world, those of you who remember this, can you believe this was 30 years ago? Churches from all over the world got on airplanes and flew to California and attended, attended Saddleback to sit through a seminar to be taught how to do the same thing and take it back to their churches. And then we started to see what? We started to see how we do church change rapidly in just a number of years. I used to teach church history. Never have I found in the history of our church, never have I seen church change so drastically in such a short time. It took the Reformation even longer than that. 
Why am I making such a big deal about this? Because what we did, this was the teaching. We're doing things wrong. We're not reaching the lost. So what do we need to do? I know. Here's an idea. This is what it taught. Let's go out as a church into the community and not share Christ, but find out what is it that the unbeliever doesn't like about Christians. And let's change. They don't like what we sing, let's change what we sing. They don't like how we dress, let's change how we dress. So they go and they take these polls. Churches were doing this all over the world. Coming back and sharing their findings with the rest of the church and then they sit down. I went to a church down on the border one time and I read the list. We're making changes. And here are the changes we're making. And it was, it was things like this. We're going to change how we dress. We're going to change what, uh, what and how we sing. We're going to change the instruments that we use in our music time. We, this is what we're going to use, and this is what we're not going to use anymore with our music, with our instruments. The non-believer was determining these things, and the non-believer was also deciding whether or not we'll have a pulpit in the sanctuary, whether or not we'll have a cross in the sanctuary, whether or not we'll call the sanctuary a sanctuary. Whether or not we'll talk about sin. Whether or not we'll talk about hell. Whether or not we'll talk about divorce and remarriage. Whether or not we'll talk about the unique roles of women and men. Whether or not we'll talk about sexual identity because we don't want to do anything that's going to turn off the non-believer. We don't want to do anything that's going to cause problems with a non-believer. Again, what was the deciding factor in these decisions? The non-believer. And even in the book, we don't call them non-believers. We don't call them sinners. We call them seekers. So we don't call them what the Bible calls them. But we find something more palatable. If this is our, please listen to this, if this is our criteria for living the life of Christ, then it is not God we are worshiping, it is man that we are worshiping because all that we are doing is centered around the desire of man and not the desire of God. This is not simplicity and purity to Christ. So what's the result? Why am I making such a big deal about this? I haven't even gotten to the text yet. Why am I making such a big deal about this? This has been the result since 1995. I know of one church that decided to take its cross out of the foyer at Easter time because it was too bloody and it may offend the non-believer. It's through this teaching that the pathway was clearly laid open, and I can talk to you more about it after if you want me to, but it was clearly laid open as a result of this teaching to open a way for conservative evangelicals to actually consider and approve both women and homosexuals to be ordained as pastors, which, by the way, no longer makes them conservative evangelicals though they think they are. Completely contrary to Scripture. But the thing I really want to point out here, the whole thing behind it, the whole thing behind the seeker-friendly movement is this, we are not reaching the lost for Christ. 
So how has the seeker-friendly movement affected our reaching the lost for Christ? Just this last week, I saw an article in Fox News that reads like this. The headline was this, number of Americans who believe in God drops to historic low. The percentage of Americans who say they believe in God has dipped to the lowest number in the past nearly 80 years, according to a new Gallup poll published on Friday. The values and belief poll conducted from May 2nd to 22nd shows 81% of people answered that they believe in God. This question was asked in 1944, 1947, two times in the 50s and two times in the 60s, and every time the response was that 98% of the U.S. population believes in God. After the seeker-friendly movement comes onto the scene to what? To reach more for Christ. This is what we find. In 2013, the number dropped to 87%. In 20, uh, and, uh, and, and 20, I'm sorry, in 2011, the number dropped to 92%. From 98 to 92. In 2013, it drops from 92 to 87. And in 2022, it has dropped to 81%. This is the result of us becoming more like the world. During this time when, when the seeker-friendly movement was really starting to roll, really starting to catch steam, I was sitting in a church leadership class with future pastors and teachers, missionaries, the academic dean of my Bible college walked in, he looked at us, and he said this verbatim, in order to reach the world, we have to become more like the world. But the Bible says this, all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, is not what? It's not from God, it is of the world. This is the result of us believing that there is something good in us. There is something good from man. This is what is the result of us reasoning from our own understanding. This is the result of us thinking that we can plan out and enact apart from the deity of Christ. So how do we respond? How do we respond to this? Colossians 2, therefore, verse 6, therefore, and you back up, you find out what therefore is therefore from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 5, he says this, you have come to Christ by faith, and then in chapter 2, he starts to talk about Jesus, I'm sorry, the rest of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, he starts to talk about Christ and all that he is. And then he says, therefore, as you have received, how have you received? Well, in verse 7, he says this, having been firmly rooted, now being built up and established in your faith. How have you received? As you have received in your faith. I was once teaching in Colorado. Torchbearers has two schools there. I was teaching in one of them, telling a story of something that happened in the other school. I was teaching through the book of Hebrews, and, and like we were looking at in Sunday school this morning, and I was talking about the rest that the believer is to know in Christ, the rest that is Christ. And on day one, the students started asking me, how? How do I rest? How do I rest? How do I rest? How? And so starting from Monday, I was there from Monday to Friday. On Monday, I said, I'm going to tell you. 
And they'd go, oh, and I'd say, not yet. And on Tuesday, I'd have the other students come up to me, how do I rest? How do I rest? I'm going to tell you, but not yet. I never had experienced anything like this. Just so many people coming up to me, how do I rest? How do I rest? And the Lord just wouldn't let me tell them yet. I said, not yet. But finally, toward the end of the book, toward the end of chapter 10, going into 11, on Friday, I looked at them. I said, all week I've been telling you that I'm going to tell you how to rest, but not yet. Well, now I'm going to tell you. And the students set up. I remember, heads, I remember a group of students sitting over in this area. All their heads come up. They grab their pencils. They're ready to write. And we read chapter 10. It is by faith. And I saw this group of students sitting over here with pencil in hand and literally do this, go, we hate faith. So I'm telling this story at the other Torchbearer Center. And after I'm done telling the story, a hand goes up, and I look over, and this young lady's sitting here, and she says, yeah, but what's the answer? And the rest of the class just looks at her. And I said, faith? And she says, well, yeah, but. See, there's the problem, right? Yeah, but. We hate faith. John Stott said it like this, faith is a reasoning trust, a trust which reckons thoughtfully and confidently upon the trustworthiness of God. Faith is a reasoning trust, a trust which reckons thoughtfully and confidently upon the trustworthiness of God. Paul himself, you know, he writes Colossians, but he also said this in Ephesians, which I think was written at the same time. He says, for by grace you have been saved, what? Through faith. Hebrews chapter 11, turn there with me real quick. In verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. God is pleased only with faith. And within the context here, this is really interesting. Within the context here, this faith has always been toward Christ, even with these old Testament saints listed in chapter 11. You know, we call them Old Testament saints. You can only be a saint if <laughs> you can only be a saint if you're found in Christ. Well, how in the world could an Old Testament character be a saint? When he gets to Moses, look in verse 26. He says this: considering the reproach of Christ, of Messiah, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. There was a faith in Christ who was to come. As there is a now faith for us in Christ who has come. Faith has always, God has always intended for faith to be in the same direction. In Christ. The simplicity and purity to Christ. He is only pleased with faith. Galatians 2.20. See, I know you've all heard this, right? I'm not telling you anything that you have not heard. Charlie is consistently leading us to Jesus. If you were in Sunday school this morning, it was very clear that we were being led to Christ. I know that you, part of this congregation, this is a consistent thing. I know this is what we have heard, but have we listened? Galatians 2.20. For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith. 
as you have received, so walk. I know you have heard these things, but are you listening to these things? Jesus went up on the mount and he took Peter, John, and James with him. Isn't that such an encouragement? Well, that is to me. To think that these are the three he chose to go with him. There's hope for me. Peter, John, and James. They get up on top of that mountain. They see the transfiguration of Christ. And Moses and Elijah appear. Peter gets so excited that he comes up with a great plan. And he wants Jesus to abide in his plan. Let's build three tabernacles. This is a wonderful place to be. Look at what's going on here. Let's not ever leave here, Jesus. So in the context here, he says, Jesus, let's don't go to the cross. Let's don't go to the burial. Let's don't go to the resurrection. Let's don't go to the indwelling. Let's don't go to you sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's just stay here. Then God speaks. See, the one that's been talking right now is Peter. I've got this wonderful plan, God. And it's going, to be, it's going to be great, and it's going to bring glory to you. Let's just stay here. Let's build three tents and just hang out on top of the mountain. And God says this. This is my beloved son, my chosen one, not you, Peter. And then he says this. Listen to him. And that word listen it means this. It means to listen, hear, and respond. To listen and respond. I know you've heard these things, but are you listening to them? We have a little dog. He's a Westie. His name is Winston. Winston the Westie. And he thinks the world is blessed because he exists in it. The Griggs showed up yesterday, and he's all over them. He's ready to bless them. And thank goodness they're dog people, so they know how to handle that. He's a lot to, he's a lot to take. He's all of 18 pounds, and he thinks it's his job in life to protect us from the FedEx man. We have deliveries all day long because of our business, but for some reason that dog, since he was a puppy, could distinguish the sound of the FedEx truck from any other truck. And now he throws his 18 pounds up against the window on the front door. He'll run, dive, and throw his body onto that front door and bark in an excruciatingly painful way. And I'll yell, Winston, come here. He turns around and he just kind of comes and he sits and he keeps looking back. And if I will keep talking to him, keep talking to him, Winston, you don't need to do that, Winston. You be quiet, Winston. No bark. Winston, you stay here. Stay here, Winston. Don't you go there, Winston. You be still. Winston, stay here. As long as I'm talking to him, he's, he's just he's looking at me. And I know he hears me because he's doing this. As soon as I quit talking, he turns around and runs back to the door, throws his body up against the glass, and starts barking again. He's heard me, but he hasn't listened. We hear every Sunday from Charlie, but do we listen? We're driving down the road, and we know that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. but if that neighbor cuts me off at the red light, he's to be damned. And it's my job to damn him. If our spouse doesn't discern that I need some quiet time right now, then it's my job to inform.
And if our children don't understand the proper way to behave at this moment, that it's infringing upon my quiet time, then it's my job to quieten them. And we could go on and on and on. Jesus gave a story one time, and it went like this. There was a man who had two sons. He told the first to go and work in the field. And his son said, I will not. But later, he regretted what he had said. He got up and he went to work in the field. The man said to the second son, go and work in the field. And he said, I will. But he didn't. Jesus goes on to ask the question, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. I know we hear. But do we listen? Just to wrap up, not going to get to all of the verses. But why should we listen? As you have received, so walk. Why should we listen to what God has to say in Jesus? Verse 9, for in him... In Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Jesus, we see all of God. Jesus is God. And then in verse 10, in him, in whom you find all of God, you have been made complete. There is nothing more to add. Because it finishes and says, and he's the head of all rule and authority, there is no need for you and I to come up with these great plans to how I'm going to be a better Christian. How I'm going to be stronger. How I'm going to be more mature. How I'm going to be victorious. Because in Christ, there is nothing more to add but everything to know. Everything to grow in. When my children were born, they had everything they needed for physical life. I was the typical father. I stood there and I counted. They had 10 fingers and 10 toes, a healthy set of lungs. They were good to go. I did not look at either one of those girls and say, Lauren, Madeline, Welcome to this world. Now get off that table. Let's get out of here. This is expensive. You've got two legs. Use them. They had been given everything they needed to live this physical life, and now it was for them to grow in what they had been given. There is nothing more to be added to the life that we've been given in Christ. You have been made complete. There is everything, therefore, because he's the head of all rule and authority. There is everything, therefore, to go in, to grow in. I became a believer when I was 13. I'm sorry, when I was nine years old. For the next 14 years, I tried my best to be the Christian I knew I should be. I was in church, and I read my Bible every night. I was active in being a summer counselor, and I was active in all the mission trips that our church had, and I was active in the Bible studies. I even lost my mind and went to Bible school. People actually were asking my parents and my pastor why they would allow, why my parents would allow Paul and me to throw away a year of our life like that. Then I really lost it and went to Bible college. 
At the end of all this training and all this trying and all this doing, I found myself in a hopeless place where there was no rest like we talked about this morning in Sunday school. There was no peace. There was no simplicity to the point that I actually quit Christianity. I told God, I have tried this for 14 years, and it doesn't work. Listen, anytime Christ becomes an it, you're in trouble. And the Lord just simply said this in my heart. He says, good, because what you have quit is not Christianity. It's Kellyanity, and it's about time. Now let me show you something. And he used verses 9 and 10 of Colossians 2 to do it. It was just minutes after I had quit Christianity. I sat down on a plane. I had nothing else to do, so I read a book. And it happened to use these verses. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you've been made complete. And he's the head of all rule and authority. I was finally at that place where I was ready to see that everything I am not, Jesus is. And from that point on, I was 22. I'm now 56. There has not been a day that I have not been aware, made mindful of the presence of God found in Christ, even in my failures. This is the life that we were created for. This is the life that we were saved for. This is life. Are you living? As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your patience with us and your pursuit of us. We thank you that you live the very demand that you place on us. We thank you for Jesus. We ask for your wisdom to abide in Christ alone. To not be led astray from the simplicity and purity to Jesus. That you be glorified. Thank you. In Jesus' name.